You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Academia et al. The podcast for anyone and everyone figuring out life in academia. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Academia Atal, the podcast for early career academics by early career academics. My name is Alina Delif. I'm a research fellow in demography at the UCL Institute of Education. I'm one of the co-hosts for this podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about real success in academia. What does it look like and how do we get there? COVID hasn't been easy for anyone. As an early career academic, one of the things that I missed the most was an opportunity to network, to meet new people, and simply chat about life and career in an informal off-screen setting. Am I doing it right? What are the next steps? Do I see my future in academia or not? Sound familiar? Well, these questions didn't get easier. We have two guests joining me today. My first guest is Dr. Jake Anders. Jake is Associate Professor and Deputy Director of the UCL Center for Education Policy and Equalizing Opportunities. His research focuses on understanding the causes and consequences of educational inequality and policies aiming to reduce it. Jake is Principal Investigator of the COVID Social Mobility and Opportunities Study, looking at the impacts of the pandemic on the life chances of young people across England. My second guest is Dr. Andre Gauthier, Associate Lecturer and Research Fellow at the UCL IUE Knowledge Lab. Her research investigates how the design of visual media can manipulate the ways in which people think and behave and how game-based learning environments can help future learning and decision-making. Andre is also currently teaching in MA Educational Technology Program, focusing on research methods related to the design and evaluation of multimedia educational tools. Welcome to the podcast. I'm a demographer and I absolutely love talking to people about their life course and turning points in life. So before we dig into the tough questions, let's start with the basics. Uh, let's start with you, Jake. When did you realize you wanted to be an academic? Oh, it's a good and big and scary question, isn't it? I don't know that there was one particular uh, moment. I feel like it's sort of a series of steps you take that get you deeper and deeper into realizing it's what you want to do. I finished my undergraduate degree and was kind of looking around for what I wanted to do. I had a job, but it wasn't necessarily what I saw myself continuing to do. And I was lucky enough to apply for and get a uh, studentship to at, at the IOE to do a, a PhD looking at inequality in access to higher education, which is kind of where my research journey began. I carried out that. I don't think I necessarily knew at the outset of that that I wanted to stay in academia at the end. But when I came to the end, I found myself, you know, looking for for positions that were academia or academia uh, adjacent. I spent some time in a, a research institute rather than a a university before returning back to UCL. But I guess the moment was somewhere in there, wasn't it? I just don't know where exactly it was. <laughs> Did you consider yourself an academic when you were doing a PhD already? Would you call that part of your life already being an academic? I guess in some ways it is. I mean, it's definitely sort of, it's an apprenticeship to be an academic, isn't it? I think as much as anything else, 
you are definitely doing the things that academics do, but you are perhaps not yet fully an academic. So I think similarly, it's sort of you, you definitely become one at some point during, during that process. It was a, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed my doctoral experience. So no, it can be, you know, tough. And certainly there were tough moments. But, you know, looking back on it, I really enjoyed that. And I think that's, you know, an important part of why I wanted to carry on having the freedoms that you you do in academia compared to some other jobs and, you know, working in the way that, that you can within academia. That's a very rigorous answer. So you basically already told me what you like about being an academic and I didn't even ask you, but <laughs> thank you. Okay, Andrea, to you now. Your academic journey started with a bachelor degree of applied arts in illustration and led you to a PhD in medical science. That's very unusual to say the least. Can you tell us a bit about how that happened? Yeah, sure, sure. It is actually kind of unusual. And when I started my undergraduate degree in illustration, I had no intention of ever doing anything in academia beyond that, in fact. But during my illustration undergrad, I had a teacher who had done her master's degree in biomedical communications, which is essentially an extension of medical illustration. And it kind of came off to me, this might sound kind of cheesy, but it came off to me as a very noble use of artwork, if that makes sense. So I kind of caught that bug of medical illustration and then pursued a master's degree in that, which is actually biomedical communication. And then I caught the research bug when I was in medical, in that medical illustration program, just kind of this curiosity about understanding why we make the design decisions that we do and how those decisions impact how other people perceive and behave and learn from the things that we create. That sounds very exciting. Sorry, you keep mentioning biomedical communicator. I'm not sure that everyone understands what a biomedical communicator actually does. Yeah, yeah. So the term biomedical communication stems from this master's degree at the University of Toronto that's called biomedical communications. But what it essentially is, is medical illustration plus. So it was founded in medical illustration in the beginnings. But now we don't just look at illustration. We look at the the design of animations, interactive modules, games, web pages, anything that you can think of that requires you know, the visual communication of complex science and and medical concepts. So that is essentially what, in a nutshell, what biomedical communications is. That sounds very interesting. It's just how I love it. As a demographer, you get people ending up in academia via all sorts of fruits. And, you know, the more the merrier. Sounds great. So thank you, Andrea. And now moving on to talk about a bumpy road of academic journey, I want to talk about something that's not being discussed very often, failures, but most importantly, ways to become strong and resilient to failure. Jake, you were involved in a piece of research which showed that parents' support and belief in children's academic ability can actually affect their grades and overall academic success. Do you think something similar happens in academia too? Yes, I think that's probably a good way of thinking. I think it's important in all walks of life, really, isn't it? But failure sort of is brought to the fore in by certain aspects of the structure of academia. We go through these rounds where, you know, just we're set up to fail and it is sort of thrust in our, our face. Rounds of applying for funding, which has a low probability of success. 
applying to submitting articles to journal which have high rejection rates you know it, you almost in some ways you you manage to talk your way into thinking things are a failure whatever way you do with with that i always think with journals if you submit your work somewhere where it kind of gets accepted too easily then you think oh no i've failed to submit it somewhere sufficiently challenging whereas if you submit it somewhere with you know really high rejection rates then probably it'll get rejected and then you 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 move on to the next one you you sort of feel like you can't win either way you do have to just you know you definitely have to develop a, a thick skin for for the kinds of comments you get from the reviewers and it's absolutely vital i think to have a kind of support network around you if you're facing that sort of thing on your own then that's really tough and i think you know maybe i felt a bit like that more particularly during my doctorate you feel like you're you know you have your supervisors there and and you know they can help talk you through it but they are in a very different position to you you sort of feel like you are doing this thing to a certain extent on your own and when people come back to you and say yeah no that's not good enough or there's this problem with it or that problem with it it can be tough to hear I think it does get easier as you move into academia partly that's maybe practice partly that is that you are more likely I think to be in teams you're working with other people and even if it's work you've done on your own and it's not work that they're part of you can compare and kind of complain about uh, about these things it's not necessarily your parents in the same way as the uh, work that you referred to um, of mine but um, it's definitely that support network and and having people there who who believe in you who understand the work that you're doing and and the journey that you're going through with trying to get it published and get it out there and having impact and all of that. What would you recommend to someone who's currently lacking this support? It's a difficult thing to find. I think it's a really important thing for academic communities, academic departments, centres, whatever the sort of relevant structure is to try and develop. And if it's not something you feel you have where you are, then, you know, maybe that's because kind of the community around you isn't isn't the right one for for providing that support that's you know much easier said than done and and there can be maybe some more direct ways as well trying to form kind of self-help networks you know the IOE's early career network I think you know one of the things that I hope it's doing is forming communities like these ones that that help to support one another through the kind of rocky experiences of early academia and you know I always encourage all early career academics at at the IOE to to get involved in that new starters and and so on when I'm talking to them so you know that creating your networks finding your networks finding research communities to be part of are all really important I think for helping with that Thank you. And thank you for promoting the IUE Early Career Network. So for those of you who are listening and don't know what it is, please go and check out. And we welcome earlier academic careers, early career academics at any stage. And we provide help, support and just friendly peer community. So please come and join us. Thank you, Jake. Andrea, I have a related question for you. But I'll start a bit from from afar. In your doctoral thesis, you looked at how game mechanics can be designed to promote productive negativity among students. So that's pretty much what we just talked with Jake. But can you tell the listeners a bit about more your findings and what's, first of all, what productive negativity is? Yeah, of course. So it's very much like Jake was saying, it's a simple concept that 
you take on board failures and negativity as a learning experience. So in my research, I was looking at productive negativity as a mechanism for cognitive change or at a lower level of helping students transform their misconceptions about complex science concepts. So you may or may not know that often students have misconceptions that molecules within cells don't necessarily move randomly. So all molecules move randomly, even inside of a cell. And But it's really counterintuitive to understand that if everything moves randomly inside a cell, how does a cell actually function so efficiently? You know, you think about cells are so efficient, but then you think of randomness and you don't think, well, random randomness cannot be efficient. So how does how is that connection made between those kind of contrasting concepts? And so it's this really difficult thing for for them to overcome is this misconception that cellular molecules move in some sort of directed way. And so uh, my research was looking at how can we get them to experience productive negativity within gaming environments so that they have the motivation to actually overcome these misconceptions. So so the really important part about productive negativity is that you need to have the motivation to change. So I think that's very similar to how it is in academia. We we take these negative experiences of having a paper rejected, but we have feedback and we have the motivation because, well, usually, hopefully, because we want to do well in our jobs and get that published and get that recognition for the for the work that we're doing and communicate to the public. And so we take that on as a learning experience and improve ourselves. So with science misconceptions, that's not necessarily always the case. So with, if you're embedding that within a game-based learning environment, hopefully you're giving them the motivation to want to incorporate these correct concepts into the way that they're playing. So you set up this, these challenges so that they need to demonstrate the correct concepts or knowledge in order to succeed, to see what's coming next, to complete the story, to get rewards, that type of thing. Wow, that's that sounds great. That sounds like a great concept and it's much easier said than done. I mean, sometimes all all we like all we do in academia is just keep failing. I certainly do feel this way and then you have to get up and keep on moving. So you mentioned that you have to grow thick skin and you need to kind of learn from from your failures. So how would how do you personally cope with setbacks and what would you say to a fellow early career colleague who is just struggling to remain positive especially now when the pandemic is still not over? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a good one. I always think in terms of the more you learn, the less you know. <laughs> I don't I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, the more the more you learn about something, the more you realize there's so much that you'll never be able to learn and there's too much to learn. And so you just kind of have to embrace the fact that you're never going to know everything and just kind of sit in wonder and curiosity at all of this uncertainty and not get bogged down by everything that you do not know and just keep trying. <laughs> yeah, keep trying is a good one. You just brought up the famous quote from Socrates, I know that I know nothing. So something he said when he was dying. So it's exactly what you said. The more you learn, <laughs> yeah, the more we learn with the less we know. Right, thank you. Now moving on to another interesting topic, and we touched upon it a bit earlier. One of the biggest obstacles that early career academics face is getting their own funding. And Jake, you and your team recently received funding to launch an exciting new study exploring the effects of the pandemic 
on inequality in life chances among young people. So can you tell us a bit more about the project? Absolutely. So we're really excited to be launching the COVID Social Mobility and Opportunities Study, or COSMO for short. It's designed to be a, a new cohort study fitting into the family of cohort studies that already housed at the UCL Centre for Longitudinal Studies in the UCL Institute of Education. We applied for this funding to, to set this up because we thought that there was a gap in the the existing cohort studies for this particular age group who have been so adversely affected, their education has been so adversely affected by the pandemic. And moreover, they've been affected in really unequal ways by the pandemic. So the aim of this study is to recruit and then hopefully follow over the coming years around 12,000 young people from across England. And we've just launched last week the first uh, round of fieldwork for that, trying to encourage them to fill out the surveys online and then with follow-up face-to-face if we we don't uh, succeed with the, the initial sort of online approaches asking them to share with us their their reflections on what's happened during to to them during the the pandemic but also information from them and from their parents and from their school about their kind of family background so that we can understand and tie those those things together and and understand the unequal picture that we suspect from other studies that have been going on but at a single point in time is developing as as a result of the disruption to education and other aspects of of life through the the pandemic and then as i say we hope we will be able to continue following them in coming years to understand how those experiences that they've had during the pandemic are are associated with what happens to them next in life as they continue in education or move into the uh, labour market in in the coming years. We think it's, you know, a a really important uh, generation to, to hear from. They've you know, really shouldered an an exceptional proportion of the the burden of of this pandemic. Given that they, in terms of their health risks, they're relatively low for for this group, but they've they've faced extraordinary disruption to their their life. And we think it's absolutely vital to understand what's happened to them and and the consequences of that. And then further to advocate for policy that will help to address some of the inequalities that that are caused by all of this. Absolutely. That's so important. I mean, being a teenager in a regular year is not easy, but in a pandemic and finishing school and thinking about your life careers, like, wow. And great. That's congratulations on the grant again. So something else that I wanted to ask you in the beginning of the podcast and forgotten. So yeah, (laughs) how did you pick the topic of educational inequalities? So how did that happen? When did you realize that it's something that you're passionate about? Yeah, I... I have always you know cared about educational inequality i think the experience that got me particularly interested as i mentioned my phd was looking at inequality in access to university and one of the reasons why i was particularly interested in that was while i was doing my undergraduate degree i i became quite involved in activities around kind of outreach from from university, trying to uh, go into secondary schools and encourage uh, people to apply to university, apply to higher, uh, more, more, more competitive uh, universities, you know, those sorts of, of activities. And, you know, 
in some ways, I probably did some of that without necessarily fully feeling I understood all of the, the issues that that raised and that were important in terms of, you know, why why we would be doing this. Was this the right way of doing things? Uh, was it going to be effective? All of that sort of thing. And and I was really passionate about the work and, you know, continue to think that's an important part of, of the picture of, of what needs to happen. But I also kind of wanted to understand, yeah, what more there was to to it than that the fact that really you know a lot of the inequality in access to university builds up at a much earlier stage in, in the education i think you know by the point of access by the point of application to university it's too late to do a lot for some of the you know ways in which young people are, are selected into to, to universities and that was a big part of the studying I did in my doctoral work was was looking at okay so what are the inequalities in access to university and what about when we take into account what GCSEs and so on young people took the test they took at at age uh, 16 for example so that we could try and understand a picture of, of where that that inequality was emerging and perhaps therefore what would be a better ways of targeting this kind of thing. So it started from kind of a an interest and a sort of you know general feeling that this was this was important, but without fully appreciating all the complexity and issues in, involved. And uh, you know, I've I've just become more and more interested in and passionate about the issues. The more I have studied and understood the complexity of the situation, and quite how much there is we need to do in order to to tackle uh, these issues. Coming back to funding, so <laughs> I understand you started working on funding applications fairly soon after you finished. Can you tell us a bit more about how you, how did you get into that, and how did you think it's affected your career afterwards? Yeah, so when I finished my uh, PhD, I, I mentioned uh, earlier that I uh, applied for kind of academic type roles. And the place I, I went to is a, a research institute called the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, or NISA, which does a lot of research around um, economics and social research, as you would expect, including the kind of educational inequality and evaluation stuff that, that, that I've got increasingly involved in across, across my career. But this was a place without students. It was just research. I'd been brought in, you know, not to lead projects particularly, but to get involved in a bunch of projects. But it became clear pretty quickly that if you wanted to kind of have control of what you were going to get to do in your in your time, if you were going to be able to work on projects that you were most interested in and most passionate about, you had to go out and get them. And my boss on the first day I arrived said to me, came in, I, I'd you know started that day, I was in, we were waiting for data to arrive. Uh, anyone who has worked on quantitative data as part of a project will know that um, almost always at the start of a project, you spend a while waiting for data to arrive. And that's particularly acute in your first job, because you know, you don't even have other work to finish up yet. So I was there, I was new, excited, there wasn't any data. So I was working on getting on top of the, the literature to do with this project. And my new boss arrived and said to me, Okay, how's it going? How's your first day? What What are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm just you know doing this. And he said, "Well, why don't you work on a, a funding application as well?" And that hadn't really crossed my mind at that point, to be honest. But I took his advice. I, I thought, "Oh, okay, right. Evidently, that's the 
that's the deal. <laughs> I'd better I'd better start thinking about this. And and so I did. And and I was extremely lucky. And you know, luck is unfortunately a, a part of, of this process when grants are so competitive. But I, I was lucky to be successful in in the application I put together. I uh, wrote an application to the Nuffield Foundation to look at the importance of subject choice in the inequality and access to, to university. So it was very much a kind of spin-off from what I'd been doing in my doctoral research, but taking, you know, a, a particular angle and, and digging into it a, a, a bit deeper. I was uh, lucky to, to get that and be able to have some time sort of, you know, that was undeniably mine as part of, of that job. I, I didn't have to just work on whichever projects came along, but I could could carve out that space and and start to be able to to make a clear contribution from that. May I ask a question, Alina? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's very interesting. And as an early career researcher myself, I've, of course, been trying to find funding opportunities and apply for funding. But it does seem that our options as non-permanent staff members are somewhat limited, right? There are some uh, particular early career uh, schemes and there's fellowships. So I was just wondering what your approach was. Were you a co-PI or were you the PI? Yeah, if you could expand on that. For someone who does not understand, co-PI is core principal investigator, PI principal investigators. Yes. So I was, I guess, again, lucky in the position I was in I was able to apply for for those as as a, a PI for for that grant as a as a PI. I recognise that different institutions seem to have kind of varying rules around that, and different funders have varying rules around that. I think also, if I'm honest, that sometimes there's a bit of kind of misinformation about those rules, and people aren't always entirely you know on top of and and understanding what those those rules are which which can be a real challenge because it's difficult when you're in that position to to challenge this and say no i i can go for this i i did experience that when i not when i was there but in another institution when i was in a a specific research job and you know it was kind of implied well you know you can't you can't go for that because you're not you're not a lecturer you're not a uh, member of permanent academic staff and i went and looked at the rules and you know kind of went well i can't see any reason why why the funder thinks that's a problem that appears to just be something that that this institution has has decided and and i went back and, and challenged this and basically said, i don't think that's right i think you know i can go for for this and managed to win win that argument but you know, I shouldn't have to go and win that argument. It it shouldn't be sort of put in in the place that an argument has to be won. And that's difficult. And and you know, I don't have an easy solution for for that sort of problem. But but I think it it is Im- important. And, you know, people should be able to go for funding. Because if, if you can't go for funding, then how are you ever going to get into into those more more permanent positions? Exactly. Well, thank you for sharing. I think like you sharing your experiences, given your expertise in and success in getting those grants, like you mentioning that it wasn't always easy and you had to fight in the very beginning with institutional rules. That's something that I don't think everyone realizes that they can do. That's maybe something that they should do if they think that they can go for it. And it's definitely something that is very courageous and you have to fight the system a little bit, something 
something that is very tough. <laughs> so next thing I want to talk is about teaching. Andre, you recently got appointed an associate lecturer. Congratulations on that. You just mentioned to us that as a particular teacher played a role in your academic career and you shaping, you know, your thoughts on, um, and, you know, being an example for doing something different. What do you personally think it takes to be a good teacher, a good lecturer, like lecturer, if we talk about academia? Yeah, well, Funnily enough about lecturing, that's that's my least favorite uh, part of it. I've always had, and I'm much better now, but I, I've always had a distinct fear of public speaking. And in fact, you know, when I was doing my master's, I get I get so nervous just to present in front of my class that I'd stutter and have a, a, a little mini panic attack in front of the classroom. So that's really been something that I've worked on uh, over recent years, over my PhD, presenting at conferences and such. But so I don't know if lecturing is the thing I'd focus on. I think it's it's really about the the one-on-one with students and challenging them to question what they're doing, question what other people are doing, and just being critical about the content or the research approach, depending on, on, on what the course is, and mentoring them to solve their own problems. That's something that folks during my PhD and during my master's, you don't, you, you often go to your to your faculty members with uh, with problems and say, it'd just be so much easier if you could just tell me what to do. And that doesn't necessarily lead to, to the best learning experiences. Your student might be happy immediately, but I definitely learned by them challenging me to solve my own problems with a, a little bit of a nudge in one direction or the other. So I know I just started, but that's something that I really hope to bring into my teaching going forward right and so you just mentioned that you know it wasn't easy for you and I just uh, wondering like how, if someone wanted to develop a teaching focused career would you have any tips for them you know like you started that you had a fear of public speaking what other skills you'd say or you know like skills or tips you could give to someone who's thinking about that uh, yeah, well, I guess it's about baby steps, you know, five minute guest lecture here, little conference presentation here, poster presentations are are really helpful, I found at, at conferences, if, if you're able to go to a conference and do a poster presentation as, as you know, a, a, a starter, because it's a bit more informal, and it just gets you in front of people talking uh, about your work, even often institutions have those kind of three minute, five minute theses discussions or events. So those, I think, are good opportunities just to get the ball rolling that that doesn't involve, you know, giving a a big lecture of of 20 minutes or even an hour. And then really just when I was thrown into my first lectureship position during my my PhD, I was filling in for my supervisor who went on sabbatical and just being thrust into that position and just having to do it. (laughs) <laughs> really really just, just treading treading just go for it <laughs> just take any opportunity like I, I I was even scared not scared I was nervous about doing this podcast today but you just have to you know just launch yourself in and it tends to always work out <laughs> me too I mean I think the motto yeah. of our conversation today was just go for it find an ap- application just go for it lecture just go for it just battle your fears throughout your journey in academia what motivated you personally during the tough times? And did you ever want to quit? So, Who are you coming to? Uh, who wants to go <laughs> first? Any volunteers? <laughs> Shall I bite the bullet? <laughs> I'm sure there have been, you know, moments where I've, I've thought about quitting. It's generally when, you know, just there is a lot on, 
on your plate you feel like there's just more emails coming in you you can't reply to them as quickly as they are all stacking up and you know it's just one thing after another i hope that's a a, a familiar feeling yeah, to other to people it's not just me <laughs> but i think slightly what what often gets me through in in those sorts of situations is it can feel quite crazy but in a similar way to to andrew was just saying it's sort of baby steps isn't it you I, I find I just keep chipping away at things and stuff does get done stuff does calm down you need to not look at your emails for a while concentrate on you know really prioritizing what you need to to get through and and other stuff can wait a bit and that's what gets me through it it, it sounds like a really mundane solution to it but but I do find that you know not focusing on the big picture sometimes is important. Absolutely. And did you ever want to quit? <laughs> I was thinking about, I was say, I'm sure there have been dark times and probably there have been. If there have, I've, I've, I think I've sort of blacked them out. I do enjoy working in academia. I, if there have been those moments, they have been thankfully relatively fleeting because, you know, most of the time I enjoy academia i enjoy what freedoms it gives you in some ways the the flexibilities it has compared to 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 some other roles i really value that and so i think that if if i i were to leave i would i would probably regret it so i'm glad that that when there have been those times um, i've i've got through them and and not dwelt on them too too long wow this is one big love to academia andrea can you beat it so <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I've only been working for about just over two years now. So during those two years, I've not wanted to quit yet. Uh, <laughs> so so that's that's a good sign. But I can say that during my PhD, there, there was a bit of a wobbly moment. So as we were talking before, my PhD is in medical science. And that came with certain expectations on the type of courses that you'd take at the beginning of the PhD. And so one of the courses I was taking was biochemistry. And this is me with my background in illustration and not having uh, <laughs> taken a chemistry course or a biology course since high school and not even remembering my amino acids or, or the, the periodic table very well. And so that was, if anything, that was an imposter syndrome, ex an experience of imposter syndrome, being around these people who have done their undergraduate degrees and their master's degrees in, in this area and, and trying to keep up with them. And that was probably the most difficult part of my entire PhD was just getting through this biochemistry course. It was... Uh, I won't say it was fun. It was pretty horrible. It was a it was a pretty horrible experience. But it was again one of those things you just chip away. It was the worst mark I've ever gotten in my academic career. But nobody sees that. That's all right. <laughs> I got through it. I learned something, and you know, fulfilled the requirements. So well, it's productive negativity. I think that's, that's right. <laughs> I think I think that's that's good advice. You know, get get on to the next thing. No one no one remembers the the marks from earlier. <laughs> and never again. So <laughs> yeah, learn from this productivity and never again. And the very last thing that I wanted to ask you, Jake, is to prepare a tip of the day for our listeners. What would it be? What I 
wanted to suggest to people is to remember that your calendar is not just for meetings or for teaching time. I find it really useful to block out time uh, in my calendar to work on particular projects. It's really helpful to make sure that that's protected time for doing research, you know, doing an important core part of the job that otherwise gets eaten into with more and more meeting requests. Excellent tip. Thank you very much, Jake. And Andrea, what would be your tip of the day? Well, uh, my tip of the day relates quite closely to my research, and it's about taking every failure as a learning experience, you know, be it a negative peer review or a failed experiment. These can all teach us something about ourselves and change the way we think uh, about our research and about our teaching. So as, as Dory says in Finding Nemo, just keep swimming, just keep trying. Just be Dory. That's great. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's a great one. I thank you very much both for coming here. Thank you for listening to Academia Town. I'm Alina Pele and my guests today were Dr. Jake Anders and Dr. Andre Gauthier. You can find the link to the Q&A pages for our guests in our show notes and the link to IOE Early Career Network Twitter. Follow us at IOE underscore Early Career if you have suggestions for content or you want to be a guest on our next podcast. Send us an email at ioe.earlycareer at ucl.ac.uk. Thanks for joining. Academia et al. is brought to you by the IOE's Early Career Network. This podcast is presented by Dr. Kerry Wong and Dr. Alina Pellich. The theme music was created by Ronnie Shu. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer and Sarah-Jane Gregory is the executive producer. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 